Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Back when we had winners, I was afraid to lose you to the competition. Five times you won the All-American. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? That was before the accident. Before the booze. You know how many people told me to just cut you loose? You gonna say anything? Howard, I've always thought of you as a small, weak, and gutless man. But you know... There's no reason to be rude. You owe me, Mike. You gave me your word. And that used to mean something. My son, Rafael, he's in trouble. I want to get him out of Mexico. You want me to go down there and kidnap him? Please, just get him back up here. Just you? Just me. Hey, Rafael, you can come out now. I'm a friend of the family. Touch me and I'll kick your asshole, man. Jesus Christ. Get in the back. We go and I tell you, okay? Look, the only place you're gonna go is the hospital. You get too angry. It's not good for you. You used to be strong, natural. I used to be a lot of things, but I'm not now. Tell you something. This macho thing is overrated. Just people trying to be macho show that they've got grit. That's about all they end up with. It's like anything else in life, you think you got all the answers. I'm Mike. Marta. And you realize as you get older, you don't have any of them. We all have to make choices in life, kid. You have to make yours. His name is Macho. Like me. Very strong rooster. Whatever. What's wrong with that? Nothing. I wants to name this cock Macho. <laughs> it's okay by me. And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no 
doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, I'm Bob Lutz, former vice chairman of General Motors, and I like listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars and Semper Fi. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me, little me, live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you missed any of our past shows, don't forget to visit Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the archive page. So, Tommy, how you doing tonight? Shut that thing off. I know, I know. Turn that thing off. You know, don't, isn't that what they tell you when it shuts I'm doing great. How are you, Robert? Pretty good. Okay. So the uh, phone's uh, disarmed at the moment. But uh, anyway, we got a real exciting show for you this evening. Last week we had uh, an interesting gentleman on our show. He was one of the founding members of the Royal Guardsmen. So we're going to concentrate a little bit more on uh, musicians and uh, nostalgic bands out of the 60s and 70s. So... And October is coming up in about three and a half weeks or something like that. So it will be Rocktober for us again. So we're in the process of trying to line up some really good musical guests. But tonight, I thought it was time to go back to talking about cars. So we got a very fascinating guy on our show this evening. Uh, Tommy, why don't you go ahead and fire up the stereo system. I don't really have a lot to say because I really want to get this guy on the show. So Tommy's going to start the turntable. And we're going to play, I don't know, how about a little Santana maybe, you know, a little Soul Sacrifice? Because the gentleman that's coming on the show is also from the Bay Area, just like yours truly. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, don't touch that dial. Here's a little Soul Sacrifice by Santana. Thank you. 
Come enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, okay, okay. Wow, we got vintage races coming up this year, so that's going to be kind of cool. Um, our good friends over there at HSR, I think they got uh, an event coming up in Sebring. I think they got one coming up in Daytona. Those are usually pretty good events. Uh, SEMA's coming up in November. I think Hilton Head's coming up. There's a lot of really good shows. Uh, I think the St. Petersburg Clearwater or Clearwater Superboat Races, which is now the Hooters Superboat Races, Hooters Clearwater Super. See, now Bobby was here, he'd straighten me out because, you know me, I don't pay. Yep, there right. Bobby, he just texted me and said, yep, okay, Hooters, Clearwater, Superboat Races. Yep, there we go. Anyway, I think that's coming up at the end of the month, so uh, we'll be there for that, hanging out with all our good friends, and we'll be doing some interviews with maybe some of the boat guys. Can't pack us, pass up a good uh, boat race. Anyway, um, third Saturday of the month, yep, the Villages Car Show. I don't know, I just, it's just kind of a nice drive going up there. You know, when you take uh, some of those side roads, you know, get in 75 for a while just to get out of town. And then hit the side roads, take off on 48, take off on 33, take off on State Road 19, believe it or not. Not U.S. 19, but State Road 19. Uh, just some really cool cool roads out there on your way to uh, the villages. 466 is another one. So I'm getting to kind of know the lay of the land. Anyway, uh, we got our very special guest coming on here in a few minutes. So I think without further ado, I'm going to try to get this gentleman on because he's uh, got a pretty interesting bio. And uh, yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, he is a Ford guy, or at least was with Ford for a number of years before he moved on. And uh, but he was involved with the uh, some of the '60s racing programs, which uh, you know I'm a big fan of, of course. But at any rate, without further ado, we're going to have him on in a few minutes. Tommy's going to fire up the stereo again. We're going to jump over and do some little jazz. How about a little Dave Brubeck and Take Five? I know this is just a real popular jazz song out of the early '60s. I remember it growing up in. Uh, in San Francisco, I used to hear it all the time. It's a really cool jazz bands, jazz uh, uh, places there in, in town where I grew up. So, uh, anyway, hey, don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Thank you. 
out there, out there is the perfect lap. You see it? I think so. Most people can't. Carol Shelby, maybe? Lee I. Coke, Ford Motor. Suppose Henry Ford II wanted to build the greatest race car the world's ever seen to win the 24 hours of Le Mans. What's it take? Well, it takes something money can't buy. Money can buy speed. What well, in about speed? You need a pure racer behind the wheel of your car. That's Ken Miles. I don't trust him an inch. We heard he's difficult. No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. No, whatever it is, Shell, no. Trust me. You're gonna build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them that you needed? Two, three hundred years? 90 days. <laughs> This isn't the first time Ford Motors has gone to war. We know how to do more than push paper. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. Thank you, sir. Do you think you can beat Ferrari? Fuck a try. We're lighter, we're faster. And that don't work, we're nastier. Make history. You ready? I was born ready, Mr. Shelby. Hit it. We're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest uh, for the evening. This gentleman also was with Ford, and in fact, he was with the uh, Ford GT40 racing program, the Ford Trans Am racing program, the uh, development of the uh, Pantera, the Ford Pantera, Lincoln Mercury, if you will, um, among other things. I'm delighted to welcome the show this evening, Don Coleman. Don, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So I played the clip of Ford versus Ferrari. When did you enter uh, the picture, kind of like with Ford and the GT40 program? 1966, which is basically the, the first Le Mans. Um, but I was responsible for the Mark Ones, whereas the factory effort was the Mark Twos and later the Mark Fours. Okay, now you have... The difference being uh, the 427 engine in the factory, the main factory cars, and 289-based engine in the Mark I cars. Okay, and you, were, you, had, uh, you had a connection with John Wire um, Racing, the golf um, group, and that was, that was a little bit later, but John Wire was actually involved in some of the earlier development, and did you, where did your, when did your relationship begin with him? The same time, 1966. In fact, I lived, I lived with John Wire for a, a period when we were developing the strategy for the GT40 Mark One program. 
Okay. Then there was another gentleman that was involved with the, uh, besides Eric Broderick, Broadley and the original Lola um, development, the a guy by the name of um, Mann comes into play there, and uh, Alan Mann specifically. And did you have any re- connections with him? Because apparently he built two alloy-bodied GT40 Mark Ones. I didn't have any connection with Alan. He was uh, more European program. He was sort of like a Carroll Shelby in that he had his own race effort. Um, he wasn't involved in the initial design of the GT40. Okay. Um, back to John Wire Racing. Now, since you're kind of like, uh, you're not Carroll Shelby, and you're not Holman and Moody. Now, I always wanted to kind of get this straight, because I knew there was a little... A lot of competition between Holman and Moody and Shelby American back in the day. So where did you fit into the middle of that? And and then of course John Wire, you know, and and he got involved in in, but his GT40 effort was 68, 69, more than it was 66, 67, wasn't it? He was involved in 66 as well. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah. Um, as as was I with him and. Uh, we were at the same races, Sebring and Daytona and so on, but we had a lot of the early development problems. For example, at Sebring, uh, we had all the camshafts fail. Was that a design thing? No, it was a, a bad camshaft vendor, um, and so on. And now our principal problem with the engine and the GT40 Mark One was head gasket issues, which we didn't solve for quite a long period of time. Uh, but the 68 and 69 cars that won Le Mans had a different cylinder head, which was the Gurney-Westlake cylinder head. Okay. Which, uh, we got 80 more horsepower out of that. It was an aluminum cylinder head, so we didn't have the head gasket problems because it dissipated the heat better. Um, and that was a whole different ball game. Did you have any connections with CarCraft, by any chance? With what? With CarCraft. In Brighton, Michigan? Well, Carcraft uh, was another separate entity that was a, a pure development uh, factory or, or race shop, you might say, that was Ford-owned uh, or Ford primary, uh, the only the only contracted for Ford. And uh, they did a number of things, uh, not only the GT40 program, but later the Mustang 429 program, which was done to homologate the 429 boss engine for NASCAR. Okay. Back when, because um, I was reading up a little bit on it, so John Wire was a big fan of the Mark I and, and said that the 289 small block would really work well if it was refined a little bit more. He was actually kind of opposed to using the 427. And so when did the, the idea of the 427 come in? So that was between, after they lost in 64, 65, they figured, okay, we can modify the car. Who was really responsible for that? Was that Holman and Moody, or was it Shelby American responsible for putting the 427 in the, uh, in the Mark IIs? Well, it's interesting because in the film, it gives all of the credit to Carroll. Right. And in fact, there were probably 100 Ford engineers that had something to do with it. Okay. And the 427 engine was run... 24 hours on a special dynamometer through the whole cycle of Le Mans. 
and uh, to get the durability where it needed to be. So then Shelby and Bowman and Moody were given uh, the 427 engine to run in the Mark II and then later in the Mark IV. It was primarily the Mark IV that uh, Carol had a lot to do with developing. Okay. We had Mose Nolan on the show, and he was telling me that when Ford decided to come up with the 427 motor, they developed that motor in 90 days from scratch. And uh, mm, The 427 motor was the primary race motor, as I remember, that was used in NASCAR. Right. So what Mose meant was the, an endurance version okay. of 427 that met the FIA homologation requirements. So it was the motor was there, but it was redeveloped for the particular um, requirements of Le Mans. Okay. So when did you actually, so before Ford and getting involved with the Ford racing program, what did you do before that? Now, I read your bio, and you went to Stanford. And, of course, anybody that's from the Bay Area knows that Stanford is the university. If you can walk into Stanford University, you are top-notch. So what what got you into Stanford? What was your background, your degree, and where did you go after that? Well, um, I... I got a master's degree in business, an undergraduate degree in economics. So my engineering was, I did not get an engineering degree. Okay. Uh, But I was a car guy, you know. Um, And like a lot of the people in the business, I learned by getting my hands dirty. Okay. And so when I was, when I went to work at Ford, I went to work in marketing. Oh, okay. uh, Actually, and I was, then I was asked to join the GT and sports car department, which for a young kid of about 24 was a dream job. And Ford gave me a lot of responsibility um, to work with uh, John Wire on that program, to work with Shelby on the Trans Am program, um, and to do the planning on the Shelby Mustangs. Uh, And then I was, as you saw, I was in... Uh, engine powertrain planning and uh, planned the 429 and the four, uh, excuse me, the 302 bus engines. Okay, now I want to get into that because I, I was reading that you were involved with the Ford Muscle Parts program too, so that's pretty cool. So let's chronologically now, okay, so then when you went to Ford and then you were with the, you got involved with the GT40 program. Who are some of the cast of characters that you worked with, besides John Wire, besides Shelby, besides Holman and Moody? Who are some of the other people that are, that are significant well, names? Another well-known name is Ray Geddes. Oh, Ray Geddes, that's right. He was the manager of the GT and sports car department. He was my boss. And Ray had a very close relationship with, with Shelby mm-hmm. and later with De Tomazzo. Um, so he was a very important guy, both in the... Trans Am effort, the Shelby efforts, the Cobra effort, and then later the Pantera. Okay. So uh, Roy Lund. Roy Lund, yeah. This is a well-known guy that de- developed a GT40 program out of the Lola and um, okay. was very important in the Lola Ma program. All right. And now... Um the Trans Am program. So, 1966, if I if my history is correct, was the first year for Trans Am racing. And right. I think Shelby, no, did Shelby won 67. 66 was one run won by uh, was it Bob Tullius in a in a in a Mopar of some kind. 
That was not a re- uh, 66 was not a real factory effort. The real okay. factory effort where all the factories jumped in was on 67. Okay, and then Shelby won that in 67, and then what was a Penske 68, 69, and then Ford? 69. And the story there is okay. Uh, in 67, um, when our major competitor was Penske, mm-hmm. the Chevy engine was a better engine than the Ford's 289 high performance engine. Okay. And we were only to be able to compete power-wise because we homologated two four-barrel carburetors. And Penske could not do that because the requirement at the time was you had to produce a certain number and sell them in the aftermarket, which we qualified for. But then in 68, when he had two four-barrels, the original high-performance version of the 289 wasn't really competitive anymore. So that's when the Boss 302, which was a whole new engine, came about, and it didn't really get it development uh, finished until about 69, when the Mustangs were then competitive again. All right, now there's a, another missing link in there, the uh, Ford 302 tunnel port engine, which, uh, tell us about that. The port engine is really the Boss engine, which had ports that were way too big okay. and really lousy for road racing. <laughs> uh, it had no mid-range torque. And so the tunnel port was really a, a manifold that was designed uh, to sl- speed up the flow of um, mixture into the engine and give it better torque and mid-range performance. Okay. And it took... A year or so to really develop that so that finally uh, it was a more powerful motor and better for road racing. Now, your background, because you said you're a car guy, so let me guess. So were you kind of like, and and the Bay Area was well known for hot rodders back in the day. So were you a hot rodder when you were a teenager? No, I was not a hot rodder. Really? I just, uh, well, my first car I worked on was a 66 Chevy V8 which was one of the early V8s that had a lot of potential. And, in fact, the 283 Chevy engine went on to become, when when you took 283 and 302 and combined them, you, you got just the right homologation uh, displacement for Trans Am. Oh. So that was a really good engine that we had to compete against. Okay. And then, so how did Ford come up with their the, the Boss 302 cylinder head? Well, I I get some credit for that, bad credit, in the sense that when I was in powertrain planning, I was responsible for getting engine division to develop a couple of new engines that were a new generation of performance engines. And the first thing I said to them is, we've got to have bigger ports. Well, they gave me bigger ports. And <laughs> when, I, when I was a performance parts manager, one day Keith Duckworth who you probably remember was the partner in Cosworth Engines, brilliant engine designer, went on to do the Formula One engine for Ford and so on. He was in Detroit, and he came into my office and he said, Hey, what's with this 429 Boss engine? The ports are so bloody big, you can send a midget down them. <laughs> and that was the problem. Um, uh, the, the, the engine division... 
said, okay, you want big ports? We'll give you big ports. And so it took a while to develop both of those engines so that they were what they needed to be for, for racing, particularly road racing. NASCAR was a little different story. Well, now, how much of the... So were they, so then Ford broke it up into, let's say we're going to do drag racing with this motor, let's say the Boss 429 or 427 or 302. We're going to go road racing with this motor, the same set of motors. And then we're going to go, uh, you know, we have to have street versions of this stuff. So the, were they divided up into different compartments? Actually, there was another motor that was for drag racing, which was the 427 single overhead cam. Oh, the camera motor, yes, the sock. That had giant intake valves, but, you know, when you're revving the thing way up for drag racing, it, it was pretty competitive. Did you have anything to do with that? Were you ever involved? It was the hemorrhoid. The hemorrhoid. Were you involved in that motor at all, the 427 camera? Pardon? Were you involved in the camera development at all? No, that was before I was involved. Okay. That was a, a bit earlier. I mean, there, there were so many derivations. The first Indy, Indy engine that Ford did was the 260 V8 made into a kind of a race engine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until after that that they developed the real Indy engine. The quad cam force. Many derivations that okay. were done for the different types of racing. Okay. The uh, Ford Muscle Parts Program. So how, how, how were you involved in that? Well, I was responsible for developing it. Okay. Um, we had uh, me and a couple of other guys. One of the, the senior engineers on the project, a guy named Bob Korn. Do you know that name? Yes, the name's familiar, yes. <laughs> a brilliant guy that came out of engine division and with another guy I found. And we did a whole bunch of uh, programs where... We worked with Ack Miller. Oh, yeah. We remember Ack Miller. Yep, out of California. Uh, did a lot of dyno testing outside uh, in California uh, t- with the different engines and uh, built various cars that showcased the motors and uh, the different performance levels. And got a lot of those in magazines like Hot Rod and sports car graphic and all of the magazines of the day and the, the the were primary goal of that program of course was to get notoriety for various Ford cars but also to develop an aftermarket parts program where the parts were sold to make uh, cars more desirable so and um, it, it was everything from from drag racing Type cars uh, to the Boss 302 uh, Trans Am program, GT40 program, and so on. It covered pretty much all of the engines and cars that Ford had. All right, so let me answer this because this is a question. Now, I'm I, I'm a diehard Ford guy, but I've had some Chevrolets and I've had some Mopars and Pontiacs and other um, U.S. good old American-made cars over the years. And you know, it's like. Just like you mentioned the small block Chevrolet. The small block Chevrolet, if you take a 283, put a 327 crank in it, you get a 302 displacement, and that worked out really good for Trans Am. Mopar had their 305, AMC had their little whatever it was, 304, and Ford came up with their 302. But knowing that 
Chevrolet had a and and one of the biggest problems on a Ford was the heads. They didn't breathe, and and everybody and 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 in the 70s, I used to street race a lot, and I raced Clevelands, okay. And like you said, the ports were either too big or too small. You know, it was just it was just kind of a it, it, the idea was there, but it just depends on the application. But where I'm going with this is that if you guys are working on these programs and you kind of knew what your competition was doing and you knew that your competition had an edge, let's just say, in a certain uh, displacement of engine, did you guys go back to the engineers and say, hey, look, you know, Chevrolet's doing real good. Their small block Chevrolet does this. Their big block Chevrolet does that. You know, and we need our 429 motors. Cobra Jet motors have to do this. Our Boss 429's got to do this. Our 428 Cobra Jet's got to do this. You know, and, but we're, because the thing that always irritated me is when you look at a Chevrolet, you look at an LS6 and it's 450 horsepower out of the box and you look at a Boss 429 and they rated it, you know, of course we know about the ratings and stuff. You know, it was rated at 370, but you jump on a, four, a on an LS6 and it's got torque, you jump on a big block Buick, a big block Oldsmobile, they had all this torque and all this power, and Ford, and I'm a Ford guy, it just seemed like we just lagged. I mean, were you guys cognizant of that back then? Did that bug you? And was it? Of course. Because one guy told me, he says, look, we were limited. The answer I can give you is you got to pick where where you're going to spend your money. That's it. The bean counters got involved, right? So we spent millions to go to Lamar and developed what we need to do to, to win a Lamar, beating the best in the world. Uh, in Trans Am, we started out relatively competitive and then weren't, and so then we had to develop a new engine program and learn what was required there. Uh, in NASCAR, we were pretty competitive. Um, in drag racing, a little, maybe a little less so, but we couldn't be the best in everything, and we couldn't, we didn't have the money to spend on every program. Is the best answer I can give you. Okay, um, the uh, the the. The, the thing that I, so in other words, bean counters got in the way and kind of limited what you could and couldn't do. Outside of the normal production stuff, how much experimental stuff was going on back in those days that really made sense, but you really couldn't do anything with it? A lot? Well, uh, let me give you examples from a personal standpoint. Okay. The... Bernie Westlake head engine that went into the GT40 Mark One was a side program. We couldn't even get dynamometer. We, my little group, couldn't even get dynamometer time at Ford because the factory was doing the 427 programs. So what did we do? We went to Gulf Research Racing in Pittsburgh and ran on their dynamometer. Why Golf? Because Golf was the primary sponsor of John Wyatt's cars, oh. the GT40s. So that was one example of an outside program where we were successful in developing something that was not the main factory effort. Another example is uh, before the rules changed for prototype racing and world championship uh, in Europe. Um, in order to be competitive, we took an early 351 Windsor engine and GT40 did, did all the same stuff to it and shipped it to John. And John put it in a car called the Mirage, which was a more aerodynamic updated version of the GT40 Mark I. And that car won three major races. No one's hardly even heard of it, but... That was another case where we had to do something, and the rules 
let us do it. And then we couldn't run it after that because uh, the Mark V rules, uh, the Group 5 rules said that you had to build 50 uh, of a car with a certain motor. And um, that's that's why we ran the GT40 Mark One and won the world championship actually in uh, 1968, beating Porsche. We were tied four up and won Le Mans, and then beat Porsche again at Le Mans the next year. Well, now wasn't Harley Cluxton? I can't think of per, per se, but there's a couple. Okay, wasn't Harley Cluxton involved in a Mirage? Very much so. Yeah. All right. Did you ever work with Harley at all on any of his stuff? No. Uh, John Horseman, who was the chief engineer for John Wire, worked for Harley developing further versions of the Mirage, which later were completely different cars. The Mirage I'm talking about was originally was based on the GT40, right? Or aerodynamic version of it. The later Mirages were much lighter, smaller vehicles that ran engines from Cosworth, uh, a BRM engine that was terrible. <laughs> it just didn't work for endurance racing and so on. But then um, John Horseman and Harley uh, were pretty damn successful with the Mirage. But that was not a Ford program. That was much later. Okay. When you were with Ford then, so in 1970, was it 71, 72, where Ford kind of pulled out of racing? Were you kind of privy to some of that, and why did they really do that? Was it an expense thing, or was it they just didn't want to be, compete anymore, or what happened then? There were two reasons. One was m- money. Okay. Two was the safety and emissions rules got to be such that it just what didn't make a lot of sense anymore at the time. That's when I was working on the Pantera program, 1970-71. Okay, so now that's good. That's a perfect segue. Tell us about how the Pantera program, because the Mangusta was already in, in, in existence, right? And then, right. so how did the Pantera come to fruition? That's kind of a funny uh, legacy story. Okay. I was working in the GT and sports car department. De Tomazzo came to us and said, I'm doing this car, the Pantera, and I want a Ford engine in it. Will you sell me the Ford 289 high-performance engine, which would have been a very good engine for that car? Well, we had stopped making that engine, so we sold them the four-barrel 289 Mustang engine, which was really not a high-performance engine. It was fine for the Mustang in the U.S., but for running on the Autostrada, uh, it was not a very good engine. And, um, in fact, when I ended up going to De Tomazzo, the first job I had was to redesign a valve train that would last uh, higher than 5,400 RPM because the guys were running their Panteras, uh, sorry, their Mangustas on the Autostrada and blowing the engine because the valve train wouldn't go any higher. <laughs> so I developed a valve train that would go to, I don't know, 6,200 RPM, and that was the very first job I had uh, when I got there. Um, but getting back to the Mangusta, the Mangusta was a, just a beautiful car. Yes. But like a lot of the De Tomazo projects, it wasn't really fully developed. Um, the durability wasn't there, and and um, he also had a car called the Vallalunga, which was prior to the Mangusta, which was a really 
sweet little mid-engine car, very innovative, that ran a Ford Cortina engine in it. Mm-hmm. He built about 50 of those. But again, it was the durability of the car was very poor. So then the Pantera project came along. How did the Pantera project come about? What was where the, how'd the concept come about? Now a lot of it's based on the GT40, right? Because it uses a ZF gearbox really, and no, it, no, it no? wasn't based at all, as far as I can tell. The GT40, um, the, the design was done, of course, by Tom Jarda, mm-hmm. um, and, and De Tomaso came to Ford and said, "Hey, I'd like to do this car and." And I'd like to get the 351 Cleveland engine to put in it. And Ford agreed to sell a car through Lincoln Mercury dealers. And the price point was $10,000 at the time, which was a fair amount of money, but pretty pretty good price point for a Italian exotic mm-hmm. sports car with a 300-odd horsepower uh, Ford V8 in it. And uh, they, the program emerged, but again... The durability was poor. It was not, you know, it was run on Autostrada or on Italian roads. And then De Tommaso's answer to, hey, uh, some of the suspensions, rear suspensions are collapsing was, oh, that's not a problem uh, because they have all those freeways in the U.S. (laughs) The result was that Bill Strop had to modify all the underbodies of the cars that came in. So oh, really? Pretty expensive program for Ford. So was that a recall, or did they actually have to do that before they hit this? It was done before the cars were sold. Interesting. Interesting. We found in testing here mm-hmm. that the cars were um, needed a lot of work. And cooling was another issue. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I can tell you that. Cooling was another issue. All right. So, um, let, But the story was that the Pantera was supposedly designed on a computer aerodynamically and was supposed to be a very successful or potentially successful race drawer. How much? And I was reading an article. And again, you know, you never know what when you're reading something, how true it is. So you were there. So tell me. Uh, I don't know that it was designed as a race car, um, and a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work had to be done on it to make it a race car. It was fairly aerodynamic, mm-hmm. because its primary competitor was the Ferrari Daytona, and the Ferrari Daytona was capable in the non-S version of around 167 miles an hour, whereas the Pantera was somewhat close, and it was when the when the Daytona S came out, it was somewhere up 180 miles an hour or something. De Tomaso said, well, we've got to develop a higher performance version of of the Pantera. And that's another story, which if you've got time, I can go into. But we got five minutes. So, so basically, is that the Group 4 program? The Group 4 Pantera? No. No? Not, not really. This was... De Tomaso decided he was going to do an overhead cam version of the Cleveland 351 engine. Oh, really? Never heard I that story. To, the first day I got to De Tomaso, Delara said, Hey, come look, we're running this engine on the dynamometer, this overhead cam engine. And so I went and I looked, and they were running this motor with a single overhead cam engine on it, a motor a head on it, sorry. And uh, it was 
producing more power, but it was pretty much at a suds at about 6,300 RPM. And one of the reasons you do an overhead cam is to get higher RPM. Mm-hmm. It wasn't getting higher RPM. And so Dave Tomazzo asked me to study the cost to do this, and I studied the cost of doing that. I also studied the cost of hot-rodding the, the uh, Cleveland engine, mm-hmm. and I was able to get like 400 horsepower out of the Cleveland and just putting three two-barrel carburetors, a different cam on it, not having to go inside the engine. And the overhead cam version of the engine was $2,500. My my cost of my modification was $400. And I, De Tomazzo had the study stolen off my desk before I even presented it to him, called me in his office and said, what is this? This is, your, your, your data's all wrong. I said, excuse me, but your purchasing people are the ones that gave me the numbers on what it would cost to do this. Bottom line was nothing happened with that program. Oh, wow. Racing the Pantera, one of the most successful racing programs was done by Claude Dubois, who was the number one Pantera dealer in Europe, and um, he knew the Ford engines very well and was able to make fairly successful racing car out of it. Um, Dave Tope, who was the vice president of transmission and chassis division, his son, Don Tope, um, was ran a, a race Pantera and uh, actually was killed in a street race in the Pantera. Oh. Bottom line, in our answer to your pro to the, your question, is the program really wasn't done as a race car. Was aerodynamics important? Yes, so you could run fast on the Autostrada, so you could compete with Ferrari, and it did that. But it was not developed as a race car at the time. In your opinion, you know, if you look at other. Um Italian exotics that were homologated with American motors, and I'll use the uh, uh, ESO Griffo, for example, the ESO, the Monteverdi, the Jensen. There's a lot of European cars that used American drivetrains. So what was the consensus back then? They said, well, let's build these European exotics, but for reliability, dependability, and cost efficiency, we'll use American motors because they're relatively cheap to to acquire and uh, cheap to maintain. That's exactly right. Um, you know, they they were much cheaper than an exotic Ferrari motor um, or other such motors, and they were manufactured in large quantities, so they could be bought from the U.S. manufacturers at very competitive cost. And, by the way, they had a lot of torque. Oh, yes. Um, and so... You had a car like the Jensen, which had a Chrysler, a Chrysler motor in it, and it was a very nice sort of a luxury, sporty touring car. Mm-hmm. Isa Revolta and um, Monteverdi. Let's see, there was another one I, I can't remember that had the Chevy in it. That was a great car. The Griff, uh, the uh, the uh, Bizzarini. So Griff, uh, uh, Bizzarini. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bizzarini. Yeah, Bizzarini. That was a really good car. Uh, and there was an, uh, kind of an ideal combination of a lightweight exotic Italian car with a pretty lightweight, torquey American V8 in it. 
All right, we got a couple minutes left. I got to ask you this question: When they developed the mangusta and or, but let's say specifically the Pantera, was there ever discussion when they built that car? While we're on the subject of motors, of them homologating any other kind of European exotic motor in them besides, let's say, a domestic American-made motor, or did that ever even come up in discussion? Well, it never came up in discussion in Dearborn, as far as I'm, as I know. Mm-hmm. Um. Because the whole concept was, again, uh, ha- being able to produce a $10,000 Pantera versus a Ferrari at the time, which is, I think, 16000 or something. And um, and the reliability and, uh, and covering warranty and so on um, was, was also an issue. Um, here's a question I thought you might ask. Why didn't... The, uh, why didn't Ford produce the Mark III GT40 instead of the Pantera? Oh, yeah, okay. And answer that one. The answer to that, because it would have been a better car. <laughs> it would have been a better car. Now, well, now, they... they uh, seven of them. Yeah, so they... Uh, it was reliable, it was tested, it was quick, it was everything you'd want in a sports car instead of the this offbeat program, the Pantera. Well, now that's interesting because the Mark III, because everybody knows the Mark I was a small block, Mark II is a big block, Mark III was a street car, Mark IV was the long tail, basically, you know, the one that Gurney and those guys 167 with. So, yeah, why is it they didn't do anything with the, with the, the, because they already had the car, they had the body, they had the development. I mean, it would have been an economical car to build and, and market. I don't know whether it, was, it would have been economical to build or not. Probably in the same volume as the Pantera, it would have been reasonably economic to build. Well, look, look at the success. Which I wasn't involved with. I don't know. It, that never happened, but it would have been a great, a great thing to do over the Pantera. Well, yeah, and here, look at it. Until 2002, 3, 4, and 5, or 3, 4, and 5, they finally did come out with a street version of the Ford GT, which is basically a modern-day version of it, and it sold very, very well. Yeah, it was a really good car. So we got a minute left, or about 30 seconds. So what do you drive every day? What, I know I saw in a picture there you're driving a late-model Mustang, so what else do you have in your stable? Well, I, at the end of this month, I will have a Mach-E GT Performance Edition. Oh, really? I ordered it five months ago. My buddies at Ford got it built the 1st of July, and it's been sitting in Mexico waiting for a chip, which it finally got about two weeks ago. And so the end of this month, that's what I'll have. It's a whole new era in performance cars. But the performance numbers are pretty darn good. But I'll have to learn all new technology. <laughs> well, Don, I want to thank you for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. i got to tell you, I want to invite you back. I'm going to wait till you enjoy your electric car for a while. I'm not sold on electric cars. I think everybody's jumping the gun on this because there's other opportunities out there. But what I'd like to do the next time I have you come on the show is we'll talk a little bit about that. And you give us you can give us your point, you know, having owned one and where you see the future of the automobile industry with, as far as electric, alternatives, hydrogen, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, my wife, one of her cars is a 1950 Ford utility vehicle built in Australia with 100 horsepower. A ute, as they call it, right? (laughs) And right-hand drive. (laughs) Right-hand drive. All right, Don. Well, again, thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio Cars. I definitely want to have you back here. We'll uh, connect with you sometime in the next six months and see how you're doing. Okay, Robert. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye-bye. I want to thank my special guest, Don Coleman, former Ford 
Uh, I guess you could say executive with the GT40, Trans Am, Pantera, and Muscle Cars program. So, uh, pretty interesting guy. So, uh, hey, if you want to find out where some of the most legendary and fascinating names are in motorsports and the music, definitely check out Nostalgia Getting Car. We're here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com. Don't forget to follow us on, I think we're on Facebook. I think that's that little thing there in front of me. And uh, Nostalgia Getting Cars, the .com, the archive page, where you can listen to all 575, 76 past shows. So a lot of car shows, boat races, all kinds of cool stuff coming up here in the next couple of months. Look forward to seeing you guys there. Don't forget, tell your friends. Get out, drive, have fun. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.